There's another camp that will say, well, Mike Winkleman, who is a white American based in South Carolina, who has built a massive online following through edgelord political satire, I'm not sure that this is the guy that we should be making the avatar of progress in the art world. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. So, as you may have noticed by now, NFTs are the talk of the art world these days. They're everywhere. It's gotten to the point where you can't have a simple conversation with someone without them bringing up NFTs or trying to turn the conversation into an NFT or something like that. Well, I have a confession to make. Due to an unusually hectic few weeks on the work front and on the home front as well, where my wife and I are preparing to welcome a little baby into the world, I actually haven't had the time to delve into what these newfangled thingamajigs are at all. (laughs) Well, my producers, in all their wisdom, have decided that I should learn about NFTs in the process of recording this episode, in the belief that maybe you, our listener, may be in the same ignorant boat as I am. Fortunately, we at The Art Angle are blessed with an able Virgil to guide my dim-witted Dante through the purgatory of NFTs in the person of Artnet News art business editor Tim Schneider, who is something of an expert on the subject, actually. So let's see how this goes. Thanks for coming back on The Art Angle, Tim. I'm sorry to say this could get a little wooly. That is my specialty. I just dive right into the wool. Okay, so I know that NFT stands for non-fungible token, but that's probably the extent of my knowledge. So what on earth is a non-fungible token? Well, I think that the best way to introduce people to this idea is not to talk necessarily first about what NFTs are per se, but about what they do. So the important thing here is that NFTs are basically a means of taking digital files, which as you and I know, just like anybody else who has ever owned a computer, like digital files are just, in theory, infinitely replicable, right? Like if you need to create a duplicate of a Word document, you can just do that in a couple of clicks. And that infinite replicability of digital files has really made it difficult for the traditional side of the art market, both in terms of dealers and collectors, to really figure out what to do with digital art because so much of the work that really is at the center of the art market, paintings, sculptures, prints, et cetera, et cetera, like it's all physical stuff that is really in short supply. Like the laws of supply and demand really drive the art market, right? A lot of it is geared towards the idea of creating exclusivity around pieces and being able to really drive up their value in that sense. And if you have something that is infinitely replicable, like a digital file, like all those dynamics don't really work. So enter NFTs. Now you have this mechanism effectively to treat digital objects in the same way that you would treat physical objects in the art world. You can make them scarce. You can build exclusivity around them. You can create anticipation for release. And all of a sudden, that sort of puts this largely overlooked element of the art market in play in a much bigger way than it ever has been in the past. 
So let me just step back for a moment, because this seems to tie into one of the most seismic changes in the culture business that has happened over the past couple of decades, which is the advent of Napster and the digitization of so much of what we consume as culture from TV to movies to CDs. And the art world has been able to kind of weather this very disruptive storm that's been happening in all these other industries because of this primacy of the original unique object. And even in something like video art, where Matthew Barney would make a video that could very easily be copied on another CD, but he would encase these in some kind of highly signature sculpture that he made out of you know his signature materials. It has that physical component to it. But what is the thing that makes an NFT translate from this kind of, you know, ethereal digital thing back to that physical thing that has been the secret sauce for the art business. This is actually a good lead in because this allows us to get into what the hell an NFT actually is. So the most commonly misunderstood aspect of NFTs is this. The NFT is not the artwork. In most cases, I'm going to repeat that because it's really important. The NFT is normally not the artwork. Huh. Let's actually go through what the words mean finally. So non-fungible is the opposite of fungible. Fungible is anything that is easily interchangeable. If I have a $20 bill in my wallet and you have a $20 bill in your wallet, Andrew, mm-hmm. and we trade those two bills, literally nothing changes. We can buy just as much after as we could before. And that's kind of all that matters because that's all that money does. The only thing that's different is the numerical code on the bill, right? Right. And and that numerical code is essentially meaningless to anybody except the U.S. Treasury. So that leads us to non-fungible. Non-fungible is something that is not interchangeable, even though it is similar. The best way to maybe visualize this is to go into more familiar territory, which is this. Andrew, you own a dog, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And our esteemed producer, Caroline Goldstein, believe that her family also owns a dog that she is very fond of. Is that right, Caroline? Yes. Princess Buttercup is a very prized member of our family. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, Andrew, your dog... And Princess Buttercup are different dogs, right? They're both dogs, but your dog is not interchangeable with Caroline's family's dog. If you came home one day and you told your wife that you had swapped your dog with Princess Buttercup, how do you think she would react? Let me just preface it by saying no offense to Princess Buttercup, but there is no way in a million years... (laughs) that my wife or I would trade uh, our dear little bean (laughs) for Princess Buttercup. Right, exactly. So so even though it is a similar presence, a similar entity, it's still a dog, it's not interchangeable. You value it differently. Your dog has a specific value to you that makes it unlike any other dog that is out there. It may be a genius. Okay. So that is non-fungibility. It's the idea that you have something that is similar to something else, but it is not of equal value. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about non-fungible tokens. We're talking about effectively 
digital assets that are uniquely valued, both from a financial standpoint primarily, but also like any other artwork, there's some amount of emotional investment in it too. So then what's a token? A token is effectively just a unique alphanumeric code that corresponds to an actual digital file that lives somewhere else. Now, that code verifies the holder as the owner. So you have all this metadata, basically, about what the thing that you own is. Most importantly, you have who made it. You have a verification that it came directly from the artist. You have some other details about it. And usually what you have is assuming that what you have an NFT for is a digital file, which normally it is, you'll have a link to that digital file. But the NFT is not the actual digital file itself. That digital file is actually usually hosted somewhere else on a different server. So if an NFT is kind of like a claim ticket, can you actually claim something with that ticket? Right. So that depends on what the thing is. I mean, this just gets very deep into the weeds very quickly. But I think that your analogy is a pretty good one in this sense. Like what you get with an NFT is effectively a digital certificate of authenticity that gives you access to something else. It's sort of like if you were able to buy a certificate of authenticity for a painting that was hanging at MoMA and that certificate, anytime you wanted it, would give you the ability to go and see it, but you wouldn't actually have it in your house necessarily. So that's sort of a weird wrinkle to things. And this takes us back to this question of like, well, I'm throwing around all these words like verified and certification, et cetera, et cetera. So like, how does that get tracked? And that brings us to the infamous blockchain, which is really the core of all of this stuff. So blockchain is a technology that has now been around for uh, over a decade. And most people know it as what underlies Bitcoin, which is the most well-known, most valuable cryptocurrency that's out there. And blockchain itself is a difficult thing to describe to people who aren't really super embedded in tech. But the simplest way I have ever really been able to come up with to try to communicate the basics is to say that it is a decentralized or distributed database. And what that means in more direct terms is that you have a record of transactions that instead of being kept in a single place or under a single person or entity's authority, instead being tracked at the same time jointly by a network of different computers in different places owned by different people. The key is that it creates, or it's supposed to create, trustless networks, meaning that you don't have to necessarily know anything about the people who own the computers that are keeping track of the blockchain in order to be able to trust that what you're seeing recorded on the blockchain is true. And the reason for that is that by one mechanism or another, again, we could just keep going further and further down the rabbit hole with this, but essentially every transaction made on the blockchain 
is verified as accurate through a method that basically gets corroborated by all of the different computers in the network together. And once you have one of these transactions that gets verified, it gets added to the blockchain. And once it's there, you can't reverse it. You can't delete it. And that means that, theoretically, for the rest of time, anybody who knows how to navigate this space can look at the blockchain and see verified proof of every single thing that has ever happened over the life of whatever it is that you're tracking. Again, if we're talking about NFTs, what NFTs theoretically give you is a verified digital chain of ownership for an object from the very start, meaning from the moment that the person who created it made it available. And you can just see every single thing that's happened with it ever since that time. And for anybody who works in art, regardless of whether they are an old master's specialist or whether they're in the contemporary field, that's a really valuable thing to be able to have because generally certificates of authenticity have been a hard thing to be able to trust and keep track of, especially over the centuries. You go back to the Renaissance paintings or something like that. It can get dicey really quickly as to where this thing has been and how you know that what you have in front of you is actually a legitimate Rembrandt versus something that somebody whipped up in a garage in Queens like last week. Where did these things come from? How long have they been around? Have they just been floating around for years and years and we're just hearing about it now? Or is this something that is uh, fairly new, you know, maybe minted during the pandemic? So that's a really good question. They've been around for longer than most people realize. The first NFT was created in 2014 at an art world event that you and I know about, but the wider world doesn't necessarily. There is an organization that is really heavily involved in what we refer to as new media or like tech-based art and related ventures called Rhizome. Rhizome does this event every year called Seven on Seven, where they pair an artist with a technologist or other thinker, and they essentially give them 24 hours to come up with an idea that they can premiere at this event. So in 2014, at the 7 on 7 conference, there was an artist named Kevin McCoy and Anil Dash, who was a sort of writer slash entrepreneur in the tech field. And together, they premiered this thing that they referred to or that would become Monograph, which eventually became an actual platform where you could create and sell NFTs. But as a part of the conference, Kevin McCoy actually created the very first NFT hmm. on stage. And they've been around ever since. And so we're now at seven years or so. And the reality is that most people who are listening to this podcast have probably never heard of NFTs until at best the end of 2020. And in a lot of cases, probably not until the past three months. Okay. So these things were created live on stage seven years ago, percolated kind of in a certain level of repute. 
But then why are they everywhere now? What makes it so relevant today? So what's important to understand here, I think, is that NFTs, as you're alluding to, they're not just a big deal in the art world. They have become a big deal in the world at large. It has gotten to the point where if you are relatively young, like your parents may be asking you about NFTs. Our colleague Ben Davis uh, appeared on the uh, CBS local news, I believe, here in New York about a week before we recorded this. And once the local news gets in on what is ostensibly an art story, you know that you've really kind of <laughs> crossed. <laughs> you've gone through the looking glass. Well, local man explains uh, NFT. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. So then why is there all this interest? I think that it's really a perfect storm of circumstances that in more ways than one goes back to the pandemic. So on one level, obviously, a lot of us have been stuck at home for a very long time. And we've been essentially living our lives more or less through screens for most of the past year, I guess more than a year at this point. And so that eliminates a broad swath of activities that especially in the art and collectibles market, you would normally go to in person. So NFTs have, in a sense, stepped into this vacuum in a way that they are something that you can get interested in, you can trade, you can try to create some level of anticipation around, and it both fills a void for people who are interested in buying and selling collectible things or artwork specifically, and it also just gives them something to do. Like a, a really important part of the whole NFT phenomenon is that NFTs, regardless of whether they are artworks or any of the other things that we might talk about, but they're usually released in what have become termed as drops. The other context where you will hear the word drop most often in terms of collectibles is sneakers or capsule collections from designers of one sort or another. And because NFTs are released in this way or tend to be released in this way, you have this mechanism of creating anticipation, creating momentum. And that plays a big part in how a market behaves, like a, a market where you are able to really drive a bunch of people to one thing at a very particular time makes that market just much more active than if it's something where people are just sort of, I don't know, maybe I'll go check this out. There's no real time pressure to do this now. I can look at it tomorrow and it's basically the same. But NFTs and the way that they're released have created some element of, oh, I have to do this now because I'm in competition for this. And we all know that competition is basically an aphrodisiac for pricing. With NFTs, I know that there's a lot of market excitement around them. How, how is that playing out? As perverse as it sounds, to put it this way, a lot of people have made a lot of money during the pandemic. The stock market, after a very brief pitfall 
right after the initial shutdowns has really surged back in an incredible way. So people who have been holders of traditional financial assets, traditional investment portfolios, they've made a lot of money. People who have owned cryptocurrency have made a tremendous amount of money. If you look at the price chart for Bitcoin for the past year, in March of 2020, one Bitcoin was worth about 5,600 US dollars. If you look at it today, it's at about 57,000 US dollars, give or take. So, I mean, you're talking about an, an asset that has increased 10x in the course of the past year. So if you were somebody who had a lot of Bitcoin, you are tremendously wealthier than you were at this point last year. Huh. And then even if you step further down the ladder, there's another really interesting aspect of this, which is that here in the US, a lot of people have gotten stimulus money. And I don't want to venture a guess as to like how much of that money is going into NFTs, because obviously a lot of people have bills that they need to pay. They have more pressing costs, but also a lot of people have lost their jobs and they are looking for opportunities to potentially make a lot of money very quickly. And this is something that has played out, I think, most famously, to some extent, in the whole GameStop phenomenon, which I don't think we should go into in depth, but definitely a market where a lot of people who are not traditionally wealthy have managed to find a way to really generate cash in a tough situation through basically pumping a financial asset. And NFTs, I think, are another area where you can see that happening to some extent. So when you have all these different classes of people who have a lot of money to spend relative to what they had before and not that many places to really spend it, it helps channel all of those assets, or at least a significant portion of those assets, into this space that is more and more sort of taking over the zeitgeist. I do have to admit that there is one piece of news that did manage to pierce my bubble of ignorance about NFTs, and that is the Christie's sale. So... What happened? How did some kind of NFT sell for $69 million, instantly vaulting, you know, the artist into the upper echelon of the most expensive living artists anywhere? What the hell happened at Christie's? Uh, what the hell happened at Christie's? Uh, hopefully somebody who works there will write a memoir with that title someday. <laughs> <laughs> so the auction that you're referring to for anybody who's listening who hasn't already been steeped in this whole situation. It was for a work and the corresponding NFT for a piece by an artist who goes by the alias Beeple. His real name is Mike Winkleman. And he has become online famous over the course of the past several years, largely through this project that he started in May of 2007, which he referred to as Every Day. And the concept is exactly what it sounds like. Winkleman has been a graphic designer slash animator by trade for a while. And he started this project 
to compel him to just create something start to finish every day that he could put out there online, usually through his Instagram account. And effectively, this piece that was sold at Christie's, which is called Every Days, plural, the first 5,000 days, which is the first 5,000 of these one piece a day pieces, sort of smashed together into a collage. Basically like an aggregation of 5,000 of these daily artworks that he has created for the past 13 and a half years. It became much more of a phenomenon than I think anybody involved with it was anticipating. Christie's auctioned this piece as a part of one of their online sales where instead of just happening at a given time and everybody bids against each other in the moment with the price being reached immediately, the sale lasted for a week. You could come in and you could up the bid at any point over the course of a week. And every day shot out of the gate really quickly, almost immediately went over a million dollars, but really in the final hours launched to an entirely new level. There was a period where the competitors were putting in 10 to $15 million increments on their bids. And ultimately, the thing sold for $69.3 million once you factor in fees, which makes Beeple now the third most expensive living artist at auction. That's just wild. I have a gotcha moment here, which is that, as you said, I did a little calculation, and it's been around for 13.6 years, if I'm correct, which is a lot longer than the seven years that NFTs have been around. So how is it possible that this thing is an NFT if it's almost twice as old as NFTs, period? Great question. So again, this goes back to the idea of NFTs not necessarily being the artwork per se. What is important is that you can theoretically make an NFT for anything, including works that have existed for a really long time. Now, the Beeple work is sort of a particularly interesting test case because technically most of those images that went into the Beeple collage, most of the individual images have been around for a really long time, but they've never before been assembled into one mega work the way that they were for this sale. So like that piece as a collage never existed before, but the individual images in it did. That being said, if Beeple had wanted to just say, instead of making an NFT of this new collaged piece, what I want to do is offer the very first one of these everyday's pieces that I ever did and just make an NFT of that, even though it was created in 2007, seven years before NFTs were a thing, he could do that because all he needs to do effectively, I mean, it's complicated, but at the zoom out to a thousand feet level, all that he has to do is get a digital file of that piece, which probably is a digital file already, and go onto one of these blockchain platforms, an NFT platform, and quote-unquote mint an NFT for the work, which means effectively to register it, register himself as the owner, making this piece available. And again, the token is just a record of him as the verified owner, 
with any of the other information he wants to put with it, including a link to the piece itself. And boom, you have an NFT for something that has technically, in a non-NFT form, been around for 13 and a half odd years. So not to get overly technical, but could I have theoretically gone back into Beeple's Instagram and made an NFT out of his work before he did? That is a really thorny question and something that is being worked out in real time right now. There are multiple cases that are already out there of artists who either have already been involved in NFTs or who haven't, who have seen their works basically stolen and turned into NFTs and sold, sometimes with the actual artist's name attached and other times under the name of the person who actually made the original work and sometimes under a different name that has nothing to do with them. And it's not clear necessarily how that translates to the offline court system. There's just a lot of uncertainty around how intellectual property works, how copyright works when you deal with NFTs. And one of the strange aspects of all of this stuff is that NFTs work on these things that are referred to as smart contracts. They are blockchain-based agreements, basically, that are set to automatically execute when certain objective conditions are met. So in the simplest formulation, a smart contract for an NFT would basically say, okay, when this amount of cryptocurrency that the artist has priced the NFT at is sent to that artist's account by a buyer, then the NFT automatically transfers over in ownership terms to the person who sent that money. That is a smart contract. And it's all run effectively through code. You don't need anybody who is a flesh and blood person to really be involved to make it happen once it's set up. Okay, so I, I just want to break in here to say that if you could see me, you would see that my eyeballs are literally bulging out of my head right now. I mean, this sounds like string theory. And I'm dying to know, with all this messy, incredibly intricate technical stuff making this into um, almost an incomprehensible kind of commodity, who was the person who was willing to pay $69.3 million to buy this thing? Okay, so this is another Pandora's box. That's what I love about NFTs. It's, it's just that nothing about it is, is really simple. <laughs> so the day after the sale was complete, Christie's put out a press release announcing that the buyer of the work was a pseudonymous crypto entrepreneur who went by the alias Metacoven. And Metacoven with their associates, the also pseudonymous Tubador, are partners in this thing called Metapurse, which by the founders claims is the largest and most valuable NFT collection in the world and also a fund for other crypto projects. 
you might need a second to process that. I don't, I don't know. Tell me when, if you want me to go further yet. I'm just thinking, I mean, have we stepped into the Marvel Cinematic Universe here? <laughs> I mean, we've got Beeple, Metacoven, the Metapurse. I mean, this sounds like a bunch of supervillains. I think it's a window into the fact that a lot of the excitement around NFTs is not necessarily coming from the traditional art world. It tends to come from people who are heavily into tech. I mean, Christie's obviously is a well-established traditional art world player that wanted to try to ride this wave and I think has done so successfully. And there are plenty of others who fit that description who are now trying to do that. But I think the majority of the buyers especially are not coming from the traditional art world circles. For instance, Christie's also announced in this press release that they released after the people sale that 91% of the bidders were new to Christie's, meaning that they had never registered for another sale. And I think it's pretty safe to assume that a large number of those people weren't just art collectors who were like, ah, I've never really bought at auction before, but I'll get involved in this, but rather that they were people who have possibly never even really thought about buying art before, but because NFTs and people as this guy who has almost 2 million followers on Instagram and has like a really big online profile, it just attracted a huge group of people who would previously never have even messed with the art world. So going back to Metacoven, who is this mastermind who engineered the sale? Do we know actually, you know, his real identity or her real identity? Yes, we do now. And this is, again, this takes us back to the Pandora's box element. So what we knew about a week before you and I recorded this podcast, when Christie's made this initial announcement, was that the buyer was Metacoven, and he and his partner Tubador had bought it for this Metapurse enterprise. And at that point, they were saying that this had the potential to be the work of art that defines this generation, and it could be a billion-dollar piece someday. And Tubador, the day that all this information came out, did an interview with our colleague Eileen Kinsella. And in there, Tubador mentioned that one of their plans for Every Days was to, and I quote, build a massive monument for this particular work of art, which exists only in a virtual world. So this is sort of the direction that these two pseudonymous crypto entrepreneurs were heading the day after the sale. Fast forward to the day before you and I recorded this podcast. So about a week after we got that initial blast of of uh, Matrix-like information. What happened yesterday was that Metacoven published a Substack piece in which he revealed his identity. And they also announced that Tubador's real name is Anand Venkateswaran. And the two of them are from Tamil Nadu. They're now based in Singapore doing all this crypto stuff. And what they told the world in this piece was that they bought the people work because, I'm going to quote here, this is Metacoven slash Sundaresan talking. The point was to show Indians and people of color that they too could be patrons. 
that crypto was an equalizing power between the West and the rest, and that the global South was rising. Whoa. So there's a geopolitical kind of agenda behind the purchase of Beeple's NFT? Well, now there appears to be. Uh, interestingly, none of this was mentioned a week earlier. And while it's always tricky to distinguish between correlation and causation, we should note here that one of the things that happened in between these two sorts of very different declarations of why this piece was acquired by these particular people was that our colleague Ben Davis wrote a review of the actual everyday's piece itself in which he looked at all 5,000 images that made up the collage and found a lot of really problematic imagery in it. Huh. And I don't want to say necessarily that that was what drove these previously pseudonymous crypto entrepreneurs to step out of the shadow and suddenly reveal that they have a social justice initiative behind this acquisition. But it is something that felt like it was worth mentioning. What kind of images did Ben find? Well, the works for the past couple of years have been like 3D renderings that I guess I would refer to as like edgelord political satire, basically. I mean, you have things like a giant robot Hillary Clinton feeding a tiny baby Donald Trump through like a vacuum hose that comes out of her crotch. I'm not necessarily sure what the political aim of that particular image is, but that's the kind of thing that you would tend to get in a recent people work. If you go back further, though, you find more and more stuff that it moves very quickly from this is kind of odd to, oh, no, this is clearly very bad. I think Ben summed this up very well when he wrote, I'll quote Ben here, a lot of people's concerns in this period were the concerns of late 2000s hipster irony bro culture, cartoons, porno, and the intersections between cartoons and porno. <laughs> so there's some unsavory um, stuff in people's Instagram stream. So has he been bitten by previously unwise uh, social media posts? Well, I guess it depends on whose reaction you care the most about. I think that what has been really fascinating and telling about the Christie's sale is that it has really divided people in terms of what it means, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing or whatever. And you have some really staunchly opposed camps in this. So you, on one side, have Beeple's longtime fans who, to the extent that they're concerned about larger issues in the art market, will look at this and say, look, this is such a great thing. NFTs have taken this artist who previously would have had no purchase in a hallowed hall of the art world like Christie's and has turned him into the third most expensive living artist at auction. His pieces are generating hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars. 
And none of that would have happened without crypto. And isn't that a great development for the world at large? Because it means that you don't necessarily have to get the approval of these traditional gatekeepers, the old fashioned way in order to have a successful career. You can really be an outsider and come in and make a statement. The other side of this is that there's another camp that will say, well, Mike Winkleman, who is a white American based in South Carolina, who has built a massive online following through edgelord political satire, I'm not sure that this is the guy that we should be making the avatar of progress in the art world necessarily. Because as you and I know, Andrew, there's been a lot of justified discussion over the course of the past few years, especially about equity and inclusion and participation in the establishment art world, a very white space, very male space. Obviously, you and I, for instance, are two white guys talking about this stuff. So with that in mind, what people who are in the art world and who are really paying attention to these issues of equity and inclusion would tell you, I think rightly, they would say that the people who most need their voices amplified now are people of color, women, LGBTQ artists, and Mike Winkleman doesn't represent any of those demographics. And so how much progress is this really from like a democratization standpoint, I think it's very questionable. And there are all kinds of other issues that sort of get tied up in this. And it very quickly descends into a really complicated discussion about why NFTs matter and like what we're valuing when a piece like this sells for $69.3 million. So you mentioned GameStop before, and if I remember, there was a fairly anti-establishment impetus that was behind this movement where they wanted to elevate a valueless stock in order to stick a finger in the eye of Wall Street and particularly short sellers and hedge funds who were trying to profit on their travails. Is there a similar anti-establishment impetus behind this whole NFT craze? And, And if so, what is the ultimate aim, do you think? I think it's a really great question, and it really points us to the reality that the participants in the NFT frenzy contain multitudes. You have very different groups who are invested in this in very different ways. I mean, on the one hand, you have the whole Beeple fan crowd, and you have pseudonymous crypto entrepreneurs. But on the other hand, you have people who have been operating in this space for years and years, and in a lot of cases have been doing it specifically because, as happens with a lot of activity at the intersection of art and technology, a lot of it is coming from people trying to find alternatives to the hyper-capitalist art market in a lot of ways. If you go back to the founding ethos of blockchain, the whole idea was to try to create these systems that would eliminate middlemen and centralized authorities. It would basically give the people the opportunity and the means to basically govern themselves in some sense, whether you're talking about money or whether you're talking about ownership of an asset, whatever it is. 
So there are still ways in which that is happening, and it's a spectrum, really, that you have between those two points. And you can find activity really at any point in between them. So, for instance, at one counterpoint to the entire, like, edgelord people thing is that uh, for the story that I reported a week ago, I talked to a really interesting guy named Amir Suhaib Carter. He is an NFT artist who goes by the name Sursu when he's in that part of his practice, but he's also an entrepreneur and either built or is in the process of building like multiple ventures that are really based around this idea of trying to elevate artists of color and LGBTQI artists, especially outside of the US and Europe. There are all these different ways that he's attempting to do that, but essentially his ventures in one way or another, he would probably tell you that they're not just his ventures. This really is a grassroots thing, but they are really based around this idea of bringing together people with very similar concerns who have generally been excluded from wealth, from attention in the art world or other spaces and trying to find ways that they can use NFTs or crypto more broadly to build these self-sustaining structures that otherwise the traditional world wouldn't necessarily support. And so it's important to mention that that kind of thing is also trying to happen and is happening to some extent within this larger bombastic ecosystem of people selling for $69 million. And it just speaks to the diversity of what could happen with NFTs and with crypto. But there's less attention on that, not surprisingly, than there is on really the NFT market operating a lot like the old market that in theory, NFTs are supposed to help us work around. So obviously the $69 million sale got a lot of people's attention. And it sounds like there is a very big market and audience, at least for NFTs. What is the art establishment actually doing? Has there been a stance taken or galleries getting in on this? I know that Christie's obviously is getting in on it. Yeah, I think that we're really in a gold rush situation, basically at every level of the marketplace. As you mentioned, Obviously, Christie's really planted their flag in the ground on this. Their chief competitor, Sotheby's, just recently announced that they are now going to do an NFT sale with this pseudonymous artist named Pac. There are old art world stars like Damien Hirst, who happened to announce, I believe, the day after the Beeple sale closed, that he was going to get into NFTs. And then you have galleries that I think are really looking at their place in this. I'll reference Postmasters, which is a gallery that has really been meaningfully engaged in tech and new media and like forward thinking projects. They actually launched a separate but linked Postmasters NFT venture where they're going to really try to to do this in a dedicated way. And I am 100% sure that If you go further up the price ladder, you would hear those same discussions playing out in one sense or another at places like Agosian and David's Werner and pretty much name any other major player in the art market right now because there's just so much money and so much attention on this phenomenon right now. It's a magnet. It's just drawing in 
literally anyone trying to figure out whether or not there's a place for them to make some money or make a mark. From a fundamental standpoint, an artwork is something that is kind of unique in that it is this great cultural object that you can have, you can put on your wall, you can put in your house, et cetera, et cetera. But it also holds all this value that may or may not increase over time. So this sounds like it has value that may or may not increase over time. What is the art part of the NFT? What is the thing that a gallery would sell a collector? What do I do with the NFT that I just bought? Well, it's a really good question. Honestly, the predominant answer right now seems to be that you try to sell it as fast as possible to somebody else for even more money than what you paid for it. So it's a stock. It's an asset that is in the middle of a market frenzy right now. Now, if you don't want to do that, if you want to hold on to it for the long run, I mean, I think that there are people who I think are probably trying to build collections of NFTs. But again, considering that the NFT is not necessarily the artwork, it brings us back to this question of like, well, what did you actually buy when you bought that NFT? Do you actually have the rights to the image? Or do you just have the rights to ownership and the image itself is still controlled by the artist or the platform where you bought it or whatever else? I think that there's probably an argument that in most cases, you're at least going to have access to the thing and you could theoretically create either online galleries that feature all of the images that you've managed to acquire the NFTs for, or I guess you create IRL thing where you've got digital screens up in a space displaying this stuff. But all of this is still so new right now that I think it's an open question as to what the real upshot of this is from an art standpoint. So Tim, this has been totally eye-opening, completely befuddling, (laughs) and really, really interesting. Thanks very much for coming on The Art Angle, Tim. This has been great. Hey, my pleasure. Well, that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manila, Tim Schneider, who you just heard from, Caroline Goldstein, who you also just heard from. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. 